Hello, good afternoon and welcome to Season 4, Episode 5 of Straight Talking English. I am Catherine, talking you through Macbeth one chunk at a time, straighttalkingenglish.com. If you want to have a record for my other podcasts, we're also on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, pretty much anywhere pods are casted. If Macbeth is interesting you, and I'm doing my pluggables at the start in case you turn off, have a look on Tez or up on straighttalkingenglish.com and you can get chopped up bits of the speeches with my explanation and context. Right, we love Macbeth, but do we love him as a person? Today we're talking about masculinity and manly men in Macbeth because aside from Lady Macbeth, there aren't really any other important female character. So let's start off, what makes a good man at this point? What makes a good Jacobean or Tudor man? Well, let's take a look back in time. Let's look at Henry VIII. We know about him at school, you know, six wives, divorced, beheaded, died. But when he was young, he was actually really like handsome the go-to prince Mr Cool before he got fat and is the guy that we imagine he's sporty he's strong he went out to play tennis on the day Anne Boleyn was executed great at riding obsessed with his clothes your clothes are an extension of yourself we talked about this last time with the borrowed robes but Henry VIII actually passed a law saying that you cannot mock the king's clothes because of an extension of mocking the king himself which is officially bad obviously we know about henry the his quest to have a son to carry on his tudor dynasty and virility is a key aspect of being a man in this time not just being able to have children and lots of children but being able to have sons because conventional wisdom says only the manliest man can father a son if you're in some way weak you get girls and during pregnancy it's actually a really good thing because Henry VIII had a lot of affairs during his wife's pregnancies such as starting to date Jane Seymour while he was still with Anne Boleyn kind of trash to us now kind of like right okay cool but it spared his wife the pressure of sex during her pregnancy as a man he has to make love he has to release his genetics into the world is officially according to the conventional wisdom of the time necessary for a man to thrive so by having loads of affairs he is actually very kind and considerate but this idea of like boys will be boys is kind of a protection the idea of masculinity in a monarch sort of excuses a lot of his bad decisions if he behaves poorly then people in the court are just like oh well he's just a boy being a boy if he has to take Take tough decisions and makes an unpopular choice people would say oh well he's a man men have to make tough decisions so it's kind of a shield this whole concept of Tudor and Stuart masculinity is linked back to this whole great chain of being thing so God up there in the heavens has decided that all of earth is in hierarchies we've got the king God's representative on earth underneath him the lords underneath him like lesser nobles underneath him the ordinary 
ordinary people. And these hierarchies also extend to the family. So in a family, the dad is the God-appointed head, followed by the mum, followed by kids. As a result, not only should a dad be providing for the family, but he's also taking responsibility for them. A really good way of seeing this is actually through church attendance. Because if you were what they called a recusant, and you refused to go to church every week, which meant you were liable for a fine or a bit later on imprisonment, the dad, the man of the house, was responsible. So if you're a woman and you don't go to church, they say, oh, well, um, the man should have told you it's fine. Under the Anglican faith, which is a subsection of Protestant, we could also say Church of England, the man is responsible for the faith of his family. And a woman is expected to take her religious guidance from her husband. We're going to come back a little bit later to this relationship between women and faith because it comes up again in our next episode which is going to be the women and girls of Macbeth. So let's look at Lord Macbeth. He starts off the manliest, bravest, most masculine that there is. The king himself says, Brave Macbeth, well he deserved that name. He is praised for his extreme violence. He is praised when he unseamed him from the nave to the chaps. So he literally cut a guy in half. Him and Banquo bathe in reeking wounds when they're on the battlefield, which is kind of disgusting, to be honest. Once again, I'm drawing on A.C. Bradley's work on Macbeth. And Bradley says, Macbeth, the cousin of a king, mild, just and beloved, but now too old to lead his army, is introduced to us as a general of extraordinary prowess, who has covered himself in glory, in putting down a rebellion and repelling the invasion of a foreign army. In these conflicts, he showed great personal courage, a quality he continues to display throughout the drama in regard to all plain dangers. And of course a man is brave. This is a time of pretty much constant conflict against the Spanish, against the French. An ordinary man living in the country may be expected to be called up to his local lord's army or he may well serve abroad and see action. He may well be prepared to defend his home. We're expecting to see this bravery and we've got it. What's interesting though is this question of how old Macbeth is. So we know he can't have children or he doesn't have children. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. If he's old, is this the pinnacle of a long career of honesty and bravery and heroism? Or is he kind of like a desperate tryhard? Is he like a middleman? Is he like, you know, the deputy under director of something, the equivalent of Patrick Bateman, trying to get ahead? It brings in a lot of his qualities into doubt. But when the witches come in, it gets a bit weirder. He is incredulous. He is interested in what the witches have to say. He says, speak, I charge you. And one of the reasons, according to weird Jacobeans, that a woman may become a witch is because her husband is not looking after her. So right, if you're a single woman and you don't have a man to supervise you, you are liable to be seduced by the devil. Which, I mean, like, okay, this I don't know if that's much of a problem that I face, but fair enough. And that's unusual. He should be straight up 
rejecting the witches. He shouldn't even be intrigued. He should be like, nope, 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 evil. But we come into his first floor to quote Bradley. He was exceedingly ambitious. He must have been so by temper. And that's his one flaw that puts him outside the system. Another manly quality he displays at the start is this incredible loyalty to the throne. He doesn't need to rebel. Our duties are to your throne and state, children and servants. He knows his place. This makes him a very good Jacobean man. We've had rebellions at this point. There's been the Essex Rebellion, which was a big one in Elizabethan times. And there's threats of rebellion straight after the gunpowder plots or around the writing of Macbeth. So to be a good man, the message is being sent out here. You know your place. To rebel makes you a bad man. It comes back to what I said in the first episode. People know this. People know their role implicitly. But James's influence as Shakespeare's sponsor is leading him to repeat this message that people already know, to reinforce it. Same way as people know, well, students know, don't have your phone out in the classroom. They know that. We all know that. But still do it so the message has to be reinforced. Generally, uh, a raised voice and a, I can't believe you're Snapchatting me again. Which is a true story. Happened in a class I taught a couple of years ago. So we've already got this sense that maybe Shakespeare's making over-egging this point about how great he is at the start to make his downfall more shocking. The other area that he seems to be a bit weird is his relationship with Lady Macbeth. She is his partner of greatness. What's this about a partnership? About a relationship being like based on equals with people doing different roles? Nah. It's the man. His role is to do stuff. Her role is to support. And Lady Macbeth invert the good qualities of a man. Things like woods not play false. That's a good thing. But she inverts it and makes it a bad thing. She's like, well, why do you have to be such a good and noble man when actually I want someone who'll go against it when she's having her soliloquy in Act 1, Scene 5? Weirdly, they show a lot of affection to each other. He calls her my dearest love. It's not unusual for marriages to be based on love. But it is a bit weird, and it's generally considered a bad idea at this point. A marriage is for the benefit of the community. It's for the benefit of the two families. It doesn't really matter if you like the person or not, but you think this will be valuable for my community, so I'm going to do it. It will be decided for by your parents, so having a quote-unquote love match would be, would be really weird. For the record, if you want to know who you'd end up marrying, ask your parents, well, look at your parents, see what industry they're in, in their workplace or formal workplace or sector of business look for someone who's about the same age as you and that may well be who you were set up with which frankly is quite terrifying considering um as i know neither of my my mother or father's workplaces are anything to do with what i'm interested in like that sounds horrible. Before I move on, I'll put just a brief mention of horse riding. One of Duncan's massive praises, praises? One of his massive compliments to Macbeth is that he rides well. And riding a horse is completely indicative of your manliness. So James I loved horse riding. Even though as a kid he wasn't physically able to do it without like a special chair. Like in Game of Thrones basically where um, Bran loses the use of his legs and Tyrion suggests a special saddle. That special saddle was what James used. And even though James had all these fears, had all these rumours about manliness, horse riding was one of his consistently masculine traits. Lady Macbeth taunts him. She says, be so much more the man. We've already mentioned about the whole clothes thing that even 
the slightest insult on someone's masculinity is a big deal. How dare she? She's the woman. She should be supporting him unconditionally. And she's saying, oh, you're not manly enough. That's horrible. No wonder he gets defensive. No wonder he says, I dare do all that may become a man. He knows what he's doing is right. And she's insulting him right at his very core. It's interesting that that is the one thing that would effectively goad him and it shows how far outside normal codes of behaviour Lady Macbeth is acting in. Or is she? The answer is not really, but I'm going to cover that in the girl episode next time. So that's your teaser. The idea is though, a man has control, a man has choices. Does Macbeth know the consequences of his actions? He says we still have judgment here. He knows that he will face judgment. He knows what will happen. And yet he still chooses to do it. It's almost a spiritual suicide, I've heard it described. He chooses this spiritual isolation. What torments him the most, according to a writer called Highland, is his knowledge of himself as the author of his fortune. He knows that bloody instructions which being taught return to plague the inventor. Despite Lady Macbeth's urgings, he chooses to kill the king and he knows that it will cut him off from any kind of idea of heaven, and yet he still chooses to do it. So is this an old man who thinks, I've already had my time, you know, I'm gonna do this, whatever. Another thing is if someone is a traitor, their wife and family have their goods confiscated. So if he doesn't have a family, it's less like impetus on him. Yet ultimately he knows what he's doing. It's this weird like paradox between his violent actions and his normal existence because he's praised for violence but violence is his downfall. Like he's loyal to this bloody system and he's a product of this system but the ambition puts him apart from it but he's loyal to it but he's destroying it. It's a really really complicated relationship and a lot of people far smarter than I am are still debating this. Ultimately, what scares him though? What sets him on this, you know, like, McBanquo's here, Banquo's everywhere, help me, help me. Oh no. What puts him on this path is his fear, but not a fear of punishment in this world, but realising what he's done. The imagery of the crime is what he fears. He fears knowing his own power over life and death, over the whole system of the great chain of being. Quoting again from Bradley. This bold, ambitious man of action has within certain limits the imagination of a poet, an imagination on one hand extremely sensitive to impressions of a certain kind, and on the other productive of violent disturbance both of mind and body. Through it, he is kept in contact with supernatural impressions and is liable to supernatural fears. And through it especially come to him the intimations of conscience and honour. Macbeth's better nature, to put the matter for clearness' sake too broadly, instead of speaking to him in the overt language of moral ideas, commands and prohibitions, incorporates itself in images which alarm and horrify. His imagination is thus the best of him, something usually deeper and higher than his conscious thoughts. And if he obeyed it, he would be safe. But his wife quite misunderstands it 
and he himself, it only in part. The terrifying images which deter him from crime and follow its commission, which are really the protest of his deepest self, seem to his wife the creations of mere nervous fear, and are sometimes referred by himself to the dread of vengeance or the restlessness of insecurity. His conscious or reflective mind, that is, moves chiefly among the considerations of outward success and failure, while his inner being is convulsed by conscience, and his inability to understand himself is repeated and exaggerated in the interpretations of actors and critics, who represent him as a coward, cold-blooded, calculating and pitiless, who shrinks from crime simply because it's dangerous, and suffers afterwards simply because he's not safe. In reality, his courage is frightful. He strides from crime to crime, though his soul never ceases to bar his advance through shapes of terror, or to clamour in his ears that he's murdering his peace and casting away his eternal jewel. It comes back again, this idea of manliness, masculinity linked, linked to sanity. After the ghost of Banquo leaves, he says, I am a man again. A man is sane. A man is in charge of his actions. But a man is also constrained within the system. Let's talk for a second about fools and foolishness. So a lot of his plays, a lot of Shakespeare's plays, including Twelfth Night and Lear, have a character who's a quote-unquote fool. Think somewhere between like a jester who's licensed to tell jokes and like um, some kind of all-knowing truth-teller. And a fool has license to say whatever he wants because he's quote-unquote mad. But a man, a manly man, I am a man again, cannot. He's part of the system. According to Act 3, Scene 2, a man is noble, wise, judicious, and best knows the fits of the season. He has a noble passion, a child of integrity. He is definitely not mad and rambling, so this could be a point where Macbeth starts to lose his masculinity in the play. I mentioned about virility and Macbeth's children. It's a bit of a weird one, because Lady Macbeth says, I have given suck, so I have breastfed a baby. Okay, fair enough. But Macduff says he hath no sons upon finding out about his family's murder, implying on one hand that Macbeth won't understand what it's like to lose your family because he doesn't have one, or it could be like a an insult, well, he doesn't even have children, as opposed to losing them. And we've got this obsession with succession. That's what drives the whole of the idiocy after killing the king. It's like, I must have succession. I must have a dynasty. I must have people to come after me. I must have sons. And it's that driving force which is quite commonplace in Jacobean society. My solution, by the way, is he should have adopted Fleance. He should have done a deal with Banquo saying, this is the way we can all get what we want. I'm going to adopt Fleance, so he's legally my son. Ta-da! The whole thing is awesome. But this is why it's not real and no one would listen to me anyway. But by the end, we can argue that he's entirely lost all his masculinity, despite being involved in this very, very violent battle. He said at the end, why should I play the Roman fool? Why should I behave like some great character in ancient literature? All these stories that Shakespeare knows about Julius Caesar, all these great heroes, they're all idiots. Why would I be like them? 
well, it's kind of obvious to us because we're like, well, they're supposed to be really good role models, so yeah. But even like the idea of classical masculinity is to him foolish because he's gone somewhere else. He shows assertiveness, but his assertiveness is cut down. He says, we will proceed no further in this business. He tries, but he is cut down. Thinking back to my theory that he's actually just like a middle manager nobody because he's easily browbeaten. It comes back to this great sin and crime again of being an equivocator. So I was reading a bit more about this. He comes from the trial of a gentleman called Father Garnet, who was the Catholic priest who held confession from the gentleman involved in the gunpowder plot. And when he was questioned after the plot, he'd tell people kind of half the truth because he, when you hear things under confession, if you're a priest, it's kind of like lawyer-client confidentiality, like you're not supposed to tell people. That's changed now, by the way. If you tell someone something in the confessional, the priest can tell the police if it's like murderous. But anyway, so Father Garnet would say under questioning things like, oh, I did meet Guy Fawkes, he did talk to me, but that's it. So it's half the truth. This is considered to be a massive crime, this being two-faced thing. And I know I've said this before, but I'm gonna hammer it home again, much like King James's propaganda. Macbeth becomes an equivocator. He stops being totally brave and honest and transparent. He says that false face must hide what the false heart doth know. He deliberately decides he's committing this additional crime, spiritual crime of equivocation. Even though he's worried about his soul, even though he's tormented by his own actions, he still made that choice and he commits crime upon crime upon crime upon crime. In the second half of the play, Lady Macbeth is pretty much written out aside from that one scene. And it becomes him, it becomes his like striding from crime to crime as Bradley says. And he becomes this like parody of a man, this parody of a king. It shows that there could be the potential for evil in all of us. As I said before, the play takes course over seven days. Even the most noble, upright, fantastic person can, within a week, become this evil parody of themselves. Bang, bang, bang. Dramatic music. So that is my summary of Macbeth and masculinity in the play. Stay tuned next time for girls and femininity. It is, as always, a pleasure to talk to you and I will return to you very soon without equivocation to discuss the ladies.